0: in 1996 after nearly two decades spent touring the american midwest with his heavy metal band star cult guitar hero Orin moon disappeared without a trace despite dozens of distraught fans the music industry barely noticed his absence while law enforcement assumed moon had simply fled the country or joined a religious commune For nearly two more decades, the true story went untold. Then, in early 2016, a music journalist for National Independent Radio received an unmarked package that contained over 200 dated microcassettes with a handwritten letter that read, This is the story of Orin Moon. He was an amazing musician, a loving father, and the best demon slayer the world never knew.
1: Notes, created by L. David Hessler, part one. I'm going to lose this damn recorder. I know it. Shit. I'm rolling. That's what he told me to do. Record... Everything that happens. So here goes. My name is Aiden, and I just saw. what? A ghoul? Zombie? Hell, I don't know what I just saw. This recording, it's a chronicle of. no. No, not a chronicle. This is. proof? Look, I got pulled into something terrible with my best friend. She doesn't even know I'm keeping these recordings. This tape and any others that follow are simply proof that... Oh God, this sounds so crazy. They're proof that magic exists. Demons are real. That something really strange happened to Orin Moon. And now it's happening to us. It all started with the funeral. Melody had pleaded with me over the phone while I was at work, begging me to take her to this viewing so she didn't have to go alone. She said it was more important than anything else, except she couldn't go by herself because she was so stoned. I told her I'd get fired if I tried to take off early. She said she'd kick my ass if I didn't take her, that she would have driven herself except she was too messed up. Man, I I thought I was helping her. I should have just finished my shift and gone home. The funeral parlor was mostly empty except for a few middle-aged strangers that sat no closer than two rows from the coffin, like they were afraid to get too close to the deceased. There were also the handful of funeral home employees who stood silently in a greeting room like robots waiting for their power switches to be flipped. I stood behind Mel, and I felt like the world's most ineffective chaperone. Mel wore her usual. Stonewashed jeans, sliced to hell from hip to shin, and a flannel shirt over one of her mini-unwashed tees. Today's shirt of choice featured her own band's logo, the Giants of Science, screen-printed and already faded. And of course, she had thrown a pair of sunglasses onto her face to hide the fact that she was stoned out of her goddamn gourd. I'd managed to find a suit, even though I had no idea who was hidden in the casket at the other end of the parlor. I at least felt obligated to dress well for the dead, no matter who they were. The aging mourners stared at Mel with reverence, treated her like she was some kind of royalty. I should have put two and two together by then, but I'm a dumbass. A sun-worn woman with long, twisting red dreadlocks and a sleeveless tie-dyed shirt offered Mel a handful of strawberries, like they were the most prized and sacred relics in the known world. Mel took them without saying anything. She just shoved them into the breast pocket of her shirt as we moved closer to the coffin. One of the funeral home employees approached her from the side, touching her shoulder as if she might fall apart if he pressed too hard. Are you happy with his final appearance? She stared at him without saying anything. A pair of thick rimmed glasses barely fit his pudgy face. He wore a tight gray suit that made him look like a human stuffed inside sausage casing. He gazed adoringly at the coffin as Mel asked him what the hell was wrong with the color. The man in the gray suit said the deceased was too ashen. We like to make sure the flesh is somewhere between the color of a peach and the color of a ripe apple. It's much more pleasant for family members. Are you a member of the family? I said no, and then stared at Mel. She grit her teeth, and even though she still wore the sunglasses, I could see her eyes close. She was silent for so long, I thought maybe she'd gone to sleep on her feet. Then she said it. She said the thing that changed my life forever. I'm the dead guy's daughter. Holy shit. I mean, holy shit. Her dad was dead. Orrin Moon was dead. I'd only met him a few times in all the years I'd known Mel. Most of the time he was off on a tour with his band, blowing minds and melting hearts. Mel had explained several times over the years that this had been her life as a kid. Orrin was on the road while Mel spent evenings and weekends with her mom in Mason's Post. He'd come home and tell her stories from the world of music and mayhem, like he'd gone on some intergalactic journey across the universe. That was ages ago. She hadn't seen him in at least five years. The man was a regional icon, but I doubt anybody outside the Midwest would know him from a run-of-the-mill roadie. But damn, if he wasn't an excellent guitar player. I mean, damn. The man in the gray suit gasped and shoved his hands into the minuscule pockets of his pants. We missed you at the family viewing last night. Mel walked away, shrugging and saying that shit happens. Old Rugged Cross played for the 20th time over a poorly installed PA system. I expected a rock star like Orrin Moon to demand the music was blasted from a pair of lopsided Marshall stacks, probably with pyrotechnics and a few drunk strippers, too. Not like this. In fact, the pudgy man said, none of his family attended last night. Mel paused, cocked her head sideways for a moment, then continued walking until she stood beside the coffin. The pudgy man said, according to documents, your father requested cremation after memorial services. He requested the cremains be sent to his brother. Mel ignored him long enough to make her point. She didn't care. So he backed away, forced a smile, and greeted another of the mourning strangers. Fluorescent lights in the ceiling panels washed everything with a pallid glow. Her father's skin was doused in that artificial light, and it made him look like a giant porcelain doll. The salt and pepper hair that normally would have hung over one side of his face was swept back into a tidy ponytail that was more unnatural than the color of his skin. Someone had shoved a tortoise shell guitar pick between Oren's forefinger and thumb as if he might jump out of the coffin and start shredding on a guitar like he had done for so many years before his death. Someone else had stuffed a pair of soiled leopard print panties down the breast pocket of his coat. This is my dad's legacy, Mel said, gripping the edge of the coffin with both hands and hanging her head over his face. A pair of dirty underwear and a used guitar pick. Rock and roll, sons of bitches. I tried to think of something to say, something that might comfort her, but it was useless. I was the worst person to bring to a funeral. He'd laugh his ass off if he saw this, a deep and melodic voice said from behind us. We both turned and faced a barrel-chested older man with no hair on his head. Nothing, no eyebrows, no beard, just mahogany skin that seemed to glow under the funeral parlor's sickly lights. He wore sunglasses as well, but they were small and barely covered his eyes. He stared at us like we ought to know him. Smiling, glancing back and forth between us. It was hard to read his expressions without his eyebrows, but he seemed genuinely amused. Finally, he leaned forward and spoke again. I'm Alonzo, he said. I'm in your dad's band. Was. Well, you know what I mean. Mel asked why the hell he was so happy. No reason to be upset, he said. Your dad isn't gone, he glanced at the coffin. That isn't Orin Moon. I couldn't help but roll my eyes. It's not that I'm an atheist or anything, but I've had my fair share of run-ins with these holier-than-thou types who crowd our town. They think I'm into Satanism because I listen to all the wrong music, wear all the wrong clothes. I hang out with Mel, who openly isn't into guys. So they all think that my soul's in danger with hers, like I'm just a ticking time bomb of sin. And here I thought this old dude was going to break out some sort of self-righteous sermon, maybe try to comfort everyone by telling us Orin Moon's soul was someplace else, that he was enjoying the afterlife with God and Jesus and an ice-cold Arnold Palmer. Mel didn't need a sermon. None of us did, which is fine because he didn't give us one. He came face to face with Mel, pulled his sunglasses off and then did the same with hers, revealing bloodshot eyes and dilated pupils. He stood like this for a few silent moments, breathing deep through his nostrils and staring at her while gospel music poured out of the speakers around us. That thing in the coffin is not your daddy, he said softly. His eyes shifted from side to side. It's not human, and you're not safe right now. She shook her head, told him she didn't understand. Someone is playing you like a pawn shop fiddle, he said, and that thing in the coffin, it's not dead. He put himself between us and the pine box which he quickly shut and sealed with a rusty padlock that had been hidden in his coat pocket. The middle-aged mourners didn't seem to notice. In fact, nobody did. Someone had taken out a mandolin and started playing Beast and Burden, one of Oren's original songs. Everyone else fumbled through the lyrics, even the funeral home employees. It was like they were all in some sort of a trance. What the hell, man? Mel asked, trying to push past him. She balled her fists and I thought she might take a swing at her father's favorite bass player. Go home, he said, with the kind of finality that you only hear in movies and soap operas. Don't answer the door and don't go outside. She reached for the coffin and he pushed her hand away. He shook his head and pointed at the entrance to the funeral parlor. Go home. She mashed the sunglasses back onto her face and sneered at him. Whatever, Al, show's over. You should go home too. My dad's dead. Deal with it." I watched her storm away from the coffin and then I stared at Alonzo. Without eyebrows, he seemed stoic and immovable. He reached into his coat pocket and I expected him to take out... what? I don't know what I expected. A knife? A severed hand? A Bible? It was none of those things, though I kind of wish it had been. He withdrew a small handheld recorder the silver kind with the tiny cassettes. He grabbed my hand and put the recorder into it, like someone sneaking owed money into the palm of a trusted friend. His eyes shimmered in the fluorescent glow and I couldn't look away. Like I was in the same kind of trance as the people singing Oren's song. I couldn't look away from his endless gaze. Keep a record of everything that happens, he said. Don't let her know or she'll throw it away, but you do it, boy, you understand? We all got a part to play in the shit that's coming and this is yours. You're keeping the story alive for her entire family." I didn't know what he meant, but for some reason I did what he said. Don't ask me why, some things are just mysteries, you know? I kept the recorder hidden from Mel and I've had it ever since terrified to hit the record button especially now that i've seen what the story is really about it's definitely not about me i don't think it's even about mel the story is about Orin moon's legacy to the world and i'm not talking about guitar picks and soiled panties this story is about magic Bad Notes is written and produced by me, L. David Hessler. You can find more of my fiction at ldavidhessler.com. This week's mixtape guest artist is Cron Goblin. Hear more of their music at crongoblin.com or facebook.com slash crongoblin. That's C-H-R-O-N-G-O-B-L-I-N. The Bad Notes theme music is by Ethan Meixle. You can find more of his work at ethanmeixle.com the national independent radio host at the beginning of the episodes, is portrayed by Adam Martins. You can follow him on Twitter at MartinsTO or listen to me giggle with him every week on the B-Mega podcast. Support the Bad Notes story by visiting patreon.com slash Hessler. You can also leave a review on iTunes or follow me on Twitter at Hessler. This episode of Bad Notes is brought to you by the good folks at Orb Industries. They've requested that I not share their company website, email addresses, or social media links, but instead just remind you that they actually own National Independent Radio, and they control everything you hear. Thanks for listening!